Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. Now, as we've been going through Genesis, we've seen how even though this sin has been brought into this world and man has rejected God's rule, God's plan is to restore the world from the curse of sin and death. And his plan is to do that through his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The promised seed who would remove the curse of sin and death and would restore the world and his people to himself. And so from Genesis 12, the plan is set in motion as God focuses on one man named Abram, who he calls out of idol worship, calls him out to follow him and to trust in him. And we saw in Genesis 12, God blesses Abraham and promises, gives promises to Abram. And these promises broadly involved land, seed, and blessing. And the following chapters, we follow this journey of faith, this life of faith of Abram. And what we'll see is through this life of faith, he'll go through many ups and downs and many trials and and testings as well. And we know that in, in chapters 12 and 13, the focus was more on the land, on the promise of the land, and now we're transitioning onto the promise of the seed, the promise of the offspring. And in this transitional passage in Genesis 14, we get some glimmers of what we are to expect of this coming seed that is promised. And we just see certain just glimmers, certain flashes here and there. So Abram's in this journey of faith. And different trials and testing come. We saw how he was tested when there was a famine in the land. And we saw that Abram didn't do that well. In, in that time where he went to Egypt and he uh, dishonored the Lord and, and he failed miserably. Then Abram is tested with abundance in the land as he has a lot of riches. He's a very wealthy man and along with uh, his nephew Lot. And they're testing there with all the abundance and the riches. And we saw that Abram has passed with flying colors in that test. And now again, here we see Another sort of test is coming Abram's way. It's a testing in success. If you remember a few weeks ago, as we looked at the first half of Genesis 14, we saw that his nephew Lot, who had separated from him, had moved towards Sodom, and then finally was living in Sodom. And there was this international warfare going on where the Mesopotamian kings of the east, the superpowers, 
were in, had conquered this area in the Jordan Valley, which includes Sodom. And there was a big revolt, and, and what happened as a result is this powerful kings of the east came and plundered this whole area and took all the people and all the goods from there, including Lot and his family and his possessions. And so Abram, as he's growing in his faith in God and his trust in God and the promises of God, and he's growing in his love for others and being less self-focused, Abram, with his three 18 trained men and some of his allies, go against these superpowers who uh, basically none of the kings of the valley could stand against and miraculously defeats these superpowers. He's successful. He's, you know, there were five kings and four kings, four powerful kings, defeated these five kings, and Abram defeated these four kings. So who's on top? Abram. Very, very successful. He's coming out as this big kingly figure, and he's coming back. And the question is, in this moment of success, in this moment of victory, what is Abram going to do? Who is he going to give the glory to? Is he going to be like the kings, uh, the Canaanite kings who just are self-focused and glorify in themselves? Or is he going to be a follower of God who recognizes what God has done and gives him the due glory? Is Abram going to be more like a Canaanite? Or is he going to be more like the man that God is calling him out to be? What is he going to do with this success is the question. And what we see here in this section is that Abram meets with two kings. And you can see how, you know, Abram, as he's he's coming back, you know, he's defeated these four superpowers of the East, these Mesopotamian kings, and he's returning back with the prisoners of war and all the loot including Lot and his nephew and his possessions. And even here you can see God is working out that promise that you will be a blessing to others. He's really being a blessing to that entire land now, that entire Jordan Valley, as he's rescued the people who have been taken as prisoners of war and he's returning them back. So as the great victor of the kings of the east and as the great deliverer of the Jordan Valley, Abram is coming down and on his way back to Hebron, which is his home, he has to pass through this valley of Shaveh. And this is where our scene unfolds this morning. By way of outline, I've just got two points Abram and the king of Salem, that's in verses 17 to 20, and Abram and the king of Sodom 
in verses 21 to 24. So look at verse 17. Really, verse 17 is almost background, uh, just setting up the scene, and then uh, it talks about the interaction between Abram and the king of Salem. Verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Kedileoma and the kings who were with him, that's the superpower kings of the east, the Mesopotamian kings, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. Now, the valley of Shaveh, or the king's valley, the, what this place was, it was a place where the, where the kings would come and negotiate. A place where the kings would come and have their councils and have their alliances and even have their victory celebrations. And this valley was, was a valley that was close to Jerusalem. And right now in this valley, there are a couple of kings waiting to meet Abram because they recognize now that Abram is also a big kingly figure, although he might not officially be a king. Now the first king we are told here in the Valley of the Kings, to meet Abram, is the king of Sodom. Now, if you remember, this was one of the kings of the valley. This was, uh, if you remember, in Genesis 13, 13, we were told that the people of Sodom were wicked people, great sinners before the Lord. And this king of Sodom is is really the head of those people. And we saw even last time the the name of the king of Sodom, that is Berah. It's a name that's associated with evil. Again, emphasizing or highlighting the immorality of the king and the rest of the people of Sodom. The king of Sodom is a very unrighteous and wicked and immoral king. And now that the war is over and Abram's defeated the superpowers of the east, this king of the valley, this king of Sodom, is now waiting in the king's valley to meet with Abram. And you sort of already are expecting that this king of Sodom is not a good guy. You know, you sense trouble with this king. And then now verse 18 reads, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. So it looks like the king of Salem is also there in the valley at the same time. And it's almost like the two kings are there and the king of Salem upstages the king of Sodom and comes right up to uh, Abram to greet him. And this king of Salem, he appears out of nowhere. And the fact that verse 17, if you just look at the structure of 17 to 24, the fact that in verse 17, it starts with the king of Sodom, and then 
the next 18 to 20, it talks about suddenly this king of Salem. And then again in verses 21 to 24, there's mention of the king of Sodom. So you have king of Sodom, king of Sodom, and you have the king of Salem sandwiched in between. And this is to really show a stark contrast between these two kings, between the king of Salem and the king of Sodom. One is an unrighteous and worldly king, and the other is a godly and righteous king. And we'll see the difference between these two kings in how they treat Abram and the kind of response that Abram has towards these two kings. Now this king of Salem, who has appeared out of nowhere, He's a very mysterious figure, but he is a very important figure nonetheless. And his name is Melchizedek. Now this, this name, Melchizedek, it's, it's made up of two words in the original, Melech and Sedek. Melech meaning king and Sedek meaning righteousness. In other words, the meaning of his name is king of righteousness. Melchizedek was a righteous king. He was an upright man in all he did and in all of his rule. And so this is, a, this is very significant considering the land of Canaan. Because the people were idolatrous and immoral and unrighteous as a whole. And not only was his name significant, Melchizedek's position was also significant. It says that he was the king of Salem. Salem was another name for what would later be called as Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And Psalm 76.2 confirms this, where it it shows that Salem is the same as Zion, and we know that Zion is Jerusalem. And here's the interesting part. Salem is a variant of the word shalom, which means peace. So in other words, in the midst of the kings who are waging war because of their own unrighteousness, here is this king of Salem, or king of peace. And this is what we read of in Hebrews 7. So in terms of, when we think of this person, he's a, in terms of a king, he's a king who rules with righteousness and brings about peace. So you have this person, Melchizedek, who's a king of righteousness and peace, who is ruling over the city of Jerusalem. Keep that in mind. It might remind you of someone later in the future. A king of peace and a king of righteousness ruling over from Jerusalem. Now it also says that Melchizedek was also a priest of God most high. That he was a God-appointed priest of the true and living God. 
Now, what did priests do? If, if the kings had authority and power to protect the people and to squash the enemies and had the authority and power to do that, what did the priests do? The priests served as a mediator between God and man, reconciling God and man. On the one side, the priest would represent the people to God carrying the burdens of the people and bringing them to God. At the same time, the priest would also represent God to the people. And the priest would mediate the presence of God and God's word of blessing then to the people. So in this sense, the priest stood in the gap as a mediator between God and man. And what we see here is that Melchizedek, a priest king, he comes to Abram with a banquet before mediating the blessing of God to Abram. It says there that Melchizedek brought bread and wine for Abram. Now, some people think, oh, this is just sustenance for Abram, as though he and his men after the war, you know, they, they're so parched and so hungry and then in need of food and drink. I don't think that's the case here, because when you think about it, they had all the spoils of war, so they would have had food and drink and all that from the spoils of war. Now, th- this bread and wine, this is more of a royal celebration for the victory that has taken place. And quite possibly even a ceremonial celebration because he's a priest. This man, Melchizedek, is a priest. A sort of thank offering to the Lord for what has taken place as they feast in this banquet. So you can imagine as Abram and Melchizedek are feasting and celebrating together, you know, they wouldn't have been talking about the weather. No, this is the righteous priest king of God. No, they would have talked about the Lord and spiritual things. And, and so when you think of even the context of this banquet, it would have strengthened Abram, not just physically, but even spiritually, he would have been strengthened. And then it says, Melchizedek, mediates the blessing of God. Look at verse 19. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high. Blessed be Abram by God most high. Now this term, God most high, this is not Melchizedek somehow affirming polytheism here. You know, as though he's saying, oh, you know, there's all these Canaanite gods here, and, and he is the greater God among all the other gods. No, this name for God, El Elyon, God Most High, it's a term that refers to God's absolute sovereignty and absolute supremacy. That he is the preeminent God of the universe. That he alone is the supreme God and the sovereign one of the universe. 
And added to that, Melchizedek says this, God is possessor of heaven and earth. What does this mean? It means that God is the creator of the entire universe and he owns everything in the universe. That all of the heavens and the earth are literally in his hands. It means that God holds the people. God holds the nations, the riches, the lands, the livestock, even time and history and circumstance, they're all in the hands of God. God Most High is in, is in charge of everything in the universe. And so this is what Melchizedek is doing as he's bringing that blessing of God to him. He's essentially saying to Abram, This God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, his blessing is on you. This God's blessing is on you. His favor is on you. See, there's no other sovereign in heaven or on earth above this God most high, Abram. The blessings that I've already promised to you, There's no one who can take away those blessings from you because it's that same God. This is who God is. God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Don't you forget that, Abram. And he's sort of reminding Abram that and reassuring Abram that. Now think about this. Why would would Abram need this? Well, he's just come from a big war. He's victorious. But much of what God had promised Abram has not come to fulfillment, particularly the promise regarding the seed promise and the land promise. So what what does God do? God, in his divine kindness, he sends a divinely appointed priest-king called Melchizedek to mediate God's blessing and to remind Abram about God and encouraging him so he's not tempted now to go the way of the godless Canaanites in his success. This is the God that is with you. This is the God who has blessed you. The God of heaven and earth, the possessor of heaven and earth, God most high, the sovereign, the preeminent one of the universe. And then on top of that, Melchizedek also blesses God. Not just Abram, he also blesses God. Look at verse 20. He says, blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now, when we think of, there's a big difference between man blessing God and God blessing man. See, when God blesses man, it could be you know, physical or spiritual blessings because man has need for both. You know, man is not all sufficient. He doesn't have everything. And so he needs blessings from God, whether it's physical or spiritual. But God, on the other hand, he's got no physical needs. He's got no spiritual needs. 
So for man to bless God, it's just a way of saying to praise God, to, to honor Him and to make much of Him. And again, even in the blessing of God, Melchizedek as the kingly priest, he's inviting Abram to see what God has done. He's saying, Abram, look, he is your redeemer. Yes, he's the sovereign ruler of the universe, but he's also the one who has redeemed you. He's the one who's intimately involved in your life. He's the one who has delivered you from your enemies. See, the reason why you were victorious with just 318 men and few of your allies against these superpower kings is precisely because God was with you and he delivered you from your enemies. So he's really pointing Abram back to God, saying, there, there, that's where blessing is. That's where your hope should be. And so the implication for Abram now is almost clear as the blessing comes to Abram. Abram, don't rely on yourself. Or the rulers of this world. Or the things of this world but continue to trust in God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, and give him the glory that is due his name. And so, here what we see is, even though Abram seemed like the greatest one of all the kings in Canaan, Abram now recognizes that Melchizedek is God's appointed mediator king. That this Melchizedek is somebody even more superior to him. And so the end of verse 20 says, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now Hebrews 7.4 makes this even clearer that Abram gave him a tenth of the best of the spoils, really. So what Abram's doing here is he sees him as the superior, he honors Melchizedek as God's mediator, and ultimately he's giving honor and glory to God. So in this interaction here, you see this. There's a mediator between God and man. And God, through Melchizedek, blesses Abram. And then Abram, through Melchizedek, honors God. You see that? God, through Melchizedek, blesses Abram. And then Abram, through Melchizedek, honors God through the best of the spoils that he gives to Melchizedek. And then Melchizedek quickly disappears from the scene. What's interesting about Melchizedek is that he is the only person in the Old Testament that is said to be a priest king. In fact, when the law of God came into play, 
the office of priest and king, when that was officially established in Israel, there was actually a strict separation between these two offices of king and priest. Only those from the tribe of Levi, and specifically from the line of Aaron, could be priests. And they could never be king. And similarly, kings could not become priests. And the reason that there was a strict separation between the powers of priest and king was because of sin. See, no one could be trusted with the power of two offices, especially when there was sin in man. Because they would misuse that. Now you think of King Uzziah in 2 Chronicles 26. He was a a king of God for many years, but as the years went past, he became proud. And he thought, oh, what's with all the priests? I can be a priest as well, and I can go and offer sacrifices as well. And so he unlawfully goes and offers sacrifices and God strikes him down with leprosy, making him even ceremonially unclean to come and worship God and approach God. So there was no bringing together of priest and king and so we see this combination only with this mysterious character called Melchizedek. And yet, about a thousand years after the incident with Abram and Melchizedek, David, the first Israelite king who occupied and ruled from the same place as Melchizedek, that is Salem or Jerusalem, he was the first Israelite king to rule from Jerusalem, Saul never did that, This king, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would write Psalm 110, which is a messianic psalm. And David would go on to say in Psalm 110 verse 4, when he talks about the the coming Messiah king, that this king would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now you might think, so what makes the Messiah so special that, you know, he can be priest and king? Well, the Messiah is the only one who will be inherently and fully righteous and without sin. And so being righteous, he's the only one who can handle and fulfill these two offices together in the way God intended and not misuse it. And then again, there's no mention of Melchizedek again. He disappears again. And then about a thousand years later, again, as we turn to the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, Melchizedek appears again. And particularly in Hebrews 7, and we read that this morning, the author of Hebrews is trying to establish that the priesthood of Jesus is 
is a greater priesthood. And he's showing that this historical figure, Melchizedek, was a type or a shadow that was pointing to the priesthood of King Jesus. And what's amazing is that the author of Hebrews is such a wonderful exegete, such, you know, he explains the word so well. And especially the first 10 verses of Hebrews 7 is actually an explanation and the implications of Genesis 14 and that interaction between Abram and Melchizedek. And, and he's trying to say of how Melchizedek was a type or a shadow of Jesus. So we'll just quickly go through this. You know, in verse 1 of Hebrews 7, basically what it says is that Melchizedek was the only priest king. And he was pointing to the ultimate priest king, that is Jesus. Verse 2, it says, Melchizedek was a king of righteousness and peace who reigned from Jerusalem or Salem. And he was pointing to Jesus, the ultimate king who would reign from Jerusalem with righteousness and bring about everlasting peace as the prince of peace. Now verse 3 it says, He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as priest forever. Now some people read this and think, oh, therefore this means that Melchizedek that appeared in Genesis 14 is actually Jesus who came in human form before the incarnation. Somehow he appeared in the form of Melchizedek. See, the, there's a problem with seeing that because if you look back again at Hebrews 7.3, it says Melchizedek resembles the Son of God. It doesn't say Melchizedek is the Son of God. See, what the author of Hebrews is picking up is what is strikingly absent in Genesis 14. If you remember, the book of Genesis is a book that is divided according to 10 generations. Remember, we've spoken through that and we've uh, different sections because in those days there were no chapter numbers, but the book of Genesis is really divided according to its generations or genealogies. And so for all the important figures in Genesis, there's mention of who their father is and how long they lived and how long they died and who their children were. But for Melchizedek, this important priest-king, there's no record of his birth. There's no record of his death. There's no record of his genealogy, despite being a priest and a king of God. And so the author of Hebrews is picking up on that and saying this is significant, the fact that there's no mention of his birth or his death or genealogy or any of those things because this is intentional because Melchizedek is resembling Christ. He's pointing to the eternal son of God who has no birth or death. And because Melchizedek has no 
predecessor. There's no one before him and there's no one after him, no successor. He really is the only one. There's only one Melchizedek. He appears to be a priest forever. Unlike the Levitical priests, where you, know, you had to have the, uh, from the tribe of Levi and then uh, a son of Aaron, and they would live for a while, they would die, and then you have to trace the genealogy again, and then had to make sure all that would come in. And so there had to be successors to continue. So what the author of Hebrews is saying is that the, the nature of this Melchizedekian priesthood is that it represents a priesthood that is perpetual, that can never needs to be replaced. Unlike the Levitical priesthood where somebody dies and then, oh, the next person has to come in and the next person has to come in. But the very fact that there's no death or birth or any genealogy mentioned, it, it almost seems like this is a perpetual priesthood and was pointing to Jesus who would be the ultimate perpetual kingly priest who would never be replaced. I know this is all a lot to take in, but I'm hoping... This will all make sense as, um, as we put it all together. Now in the second half of Hebrews 7, the author then will go on to say that Christ is that final, eternal, kingly priest. Why? Because he's righteous. Because he's undefiled. Because he's sinless. See, because he has no sin in him, Death does not come to him because death is a wage of sin. And if there's no sin, death is not going to come to you. And he goes on to say that therefore he doesn't have to offer sacrifices for his sins and then for the sins of the other people like the other priests. Because Jesus is the undefiled one. He is the righteous one. And so he alone is able to save his people and consecrate them and bring them into right standing with God. Jesus, the priest king, Melchizedek pointed to him. But I hope you understand in one sense why we need both a king and a priest to save us. We need both a king and a priest to save us. You say, why? Well, one, when you think about the king, we need a king who is a righteous one to rule over us, to subdue us, and, and one who will you know, defeat all the, has the power to defeat all the unrighteous enemies around. We don't have the power to do that. We don't have the authority to do that. So one, we need a king, a righteous king like that. But if he's only a righteous king, then that would be a terrifying thing for us. You say, why? Because of how unrighteous we are. See, that would put us at odds with this king who is supremely righteous and just. And that's why then we need a priest, a mediator, a go-between 
God and man. And that's who Jesus is. See, the perfect eternal priest who came and offered his righteous life, his sinless life as a perfect sacrifice for sinful people like us. And so then the perfect justice of God, the perfect righteousness of God in the form of justice, in the form of wrath, was poured out on Jesus for our sin. And Jesus died in our place for our sins. And he satisfied the justice of God. And then on the third day, he rose again, proving that Jesus is who he says he is. His work on the cross was sufficient to satisfy the justice of a righteous God, and he's able to bring sinful people into right standing with God. This is what Jesus has done for every believer. The priestly king of righteousness has brought us into right standing with God as well as eternal peace with God. He is the one who reigns in righteousness and establishes peace even between us and God. Now, if you're here this morning and listening to this message and are not a Christian, let me tell you, friend, there is no way for you to be made right with God the Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth. Because he is the other than God, the most preeminent one. He is the righteous God and you are not. You are sinful. You might try to hide it. You might try to suppress it. But you know deep down inside, you are sinful. And what you need is a righteous mediator to mediate between you and God. And the good news is this, that God has provided that mediator in the person of Jesus Christ. Trust in Jesus and what he has done on the cross. And you can be made right with God. And if you say this morning, yes, I believe. I believe in Jesus. I believe in what he has done on the cross. Then I would say then, turn away from your sin. Turn away from yourself. Turn away from trusting in yourself. And keep trusting in Jesus. And follow hard after him. And the evidence that you have put your full trust in Jesus is that you are continuing to do this. Where you're turning away from trusting in yourself and you're continuing to trust in Jesus and follow Jesus. So Melchizedek, the priest king of Salem, who mediated God's blessing to Abram was a shadow of what to expect 
of the ultimate king, Jesus Christ. The seed that was promised. The righteous priest king who would mediate the blessing of God to his people and bring peace between God and man. Now just very quickly, we now look at the king of Sodom. In fact, we go back to him and we'll look at his interaction with Abram. In verses 21 to 24, verse 21 says, And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. You see the big contrast between Melchizedek, the righteous king of Salem, and Bera, the unrighteous king of Sodom? I mean, the king of Salem, he brings a feast for Abram. But the king of Sodom, he brings nothing. The king of Salem blesses Abram. The king of Sodom does no such thing. In fact, there's not even a thank you. In fact, the first words from the mouth of king of Sodom is, Give me. Give me, Abram. Give me the persons, but take the goods. Now, I want you to think of this for a moment. I mean, the king of Sodom is an unrighteous, wicked, immoral king. He's the one who, if you remember, who hid in one of the tar pits when the four Mesopotamian kings came. You know, he was weak and cowardly and wouldn't even risk his life for his people. But Abram, on the other hand, risked his life went, took his men, fought the war, brought back all the prisoners of war along with all their possessions. And now the king of Sodom is trying to strike a bargain with Abram. Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But here's the thing. I mean, Abram's the clear victor in the war. So naturally, all the spoils of war belong to Abram. I mean, that's his. The king of Sodom has lost everything, and so he was in no position to make any bargain. Essentially, the king of Sodom is offering what is not his to give. Everything belonged to Abram. And you can almost hear Satan in the background. Remember Jesus and Satan in the wilderness? Where Satan tells Jesus, I'll offer you all this if only you will worship me. When none of that belonged to Satan, it all belonged to Jesus. See, what the king of Sodom is trying to do by saying, you take the goods, he's trying to get into a bond, a close association with Abram. To have Abram as his ally. 
So how does Abram respond to this king of Sodom? Look at verse 22 and 23. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you say, I have made Abram rich. Now this lifting up of hands, it's, it, it's a way of making an oath. So Abram is saying, I have made an oath to God most high who holds the universe in his hand that I will not take anything from you whatsoever. Not even a little thread, not even a sandal strap, nothing will I take from you lest you say, I have made Abram rich. Now if you think about it, you know, Abram, while he was in Egypt, through his lies... Pharaoh, another pagan king, gave him a lot of riches. Perhaps he learned his lesson there. That maybe there were whispers going on, hey, you know, Abram got rich actually through Pharaoh. Or maybe it's just that Sodom and the king of Sodom was so wicked and immoral and unrighteous, Abram saying, I do not want to be associated with you in any way. See, because by associating with the king of Sodom, he would be tarnishing the name of the Lord. He's essentially saying, to be associated with you, it's not good for my faith. My allegiance is to the Lord, and I'm going to trust God to provide any rewards. See, what he's trying to do is, when he does get the rewards... that God alone would get the glory. That everyone around would say, oh, that was God's doing. And that's what he was reminded of as this priestly king came and pointed him back to the glory of God. That it's God, it's all about him. It's all about making much of him. And so what you see here is Abram, doesn't associate with this king of Sodom. He doesn't want God's glory to be diminished in any way from any association or this reward that he will get from the king of Sodom. And then verse 24, it says, I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Later, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. So he's saying, as for me, I'm not going to take anything. My men, yes, they've eaten from the spoils, but that's just part of being, you know, as part of the war. As for my allies, let them take their share if they want it, because they're not under the same obligation as me to the Lord. See, one of the things that you see here as you see Abram's life of faith is after this big success, he's he's on this crossroad and there's the king of Salem and the king of Sodom. There's Jerusalem and there is Sodom. 
there is Christ and there is Satan. And, and they're both right there. And as he's refreshed, Abram chooses to honor God and give him glory and give his allegiance to God. And we see Abram's faith is again growing over here. You know, it's tempting even for us, and I'm going to close with this. You know, in our life of faith, often, whether it's after victories, great victories, and we're going good, and some spiritual battles, and oh yes, you know, things have gotten so good. And then we're, again, bombarded with just the appeal of the world, where the hiss of that serpent comes. And it seems so attractive, and oh, that friendship, and that safety, and that security, and the pleasure, and, and whatever else. Oh, this couldn't be that bad. And yet, all those who go down that path, ultimately, it will be for their ruin. And we will see the ruin of Sodom when we get to Genesis 19. But the greatest hope that we have as believers is that we have set our hope on Jesus Christ, who will come for us. Yes, the powers of darkness may be at work in this world and they will come in different ways, but they're not too much for King Jesus. No, we have an eternal priest according to the order of Melchizedek through whom we can draw near to God. And he will carry our burdens to him and he will bring his blessing to us and he will sustain us. That's the priest's king, God, that we serve this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the fact that you have called us out and even though we couldn't save ourselves, we were unrighteous through and through. We thank you for our priest king, the king of righteousness. The king who then became our priest and was our sacrifice and bore your righteousness and bore your justice and made us right with you. Lord, we thank you for Jesus and we thank you for your provision in and through him. Help us each day as we live in this earth to not listen to the whispers of Satan, but to be refreshed by the word of Christ as we meditate on scripture and as we commune with him in prayer. May that Jesus would strengthen us by his spirit and may we be found faithful to you and give you all the glory that is due to you, knowing that ultimately this is also for our good. We thank you for these truths. Pray that you would refresh us, strengthen us, even for this week, and we pray all this in Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen.